What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the E4 Explicit Podcast. For those of you who are listening or watching, this episode is some something I've been looking forward to for a while. Greg Kading, the homicide detective that investigated the notorious B.I.G. and the Tupac Shakur murder cases 10 years after they were murdered and basically came to the conclusion of who did it and why. We also talked about the Elisa Lamb story, which is the, the unfortunate female that found was found dead in the water tank uh, top of the Cecil Hotel in 2013. We go over all these cases, we go over all the details, and we come to the conclusion we solved Biggie and Tupac's murder, we solved Elisa's uh, murder, not murder, her death, we solved her death, and we talk about homicide detectives, we talk about the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, we talk about a lot of, uh, we talk about a lot of things. Very exciting. Greg is an awesome guy, down to earth, homicide detective, which you all know I'm obsessed with these kind of people. So I'm glad that he took the time to talk to me. Like, subscribe, and hit that bell notification so you get notified every single time I post new content, which is every Friday there will be a new episode of E4 Explicit Podcast on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, everywhere. Enjoy this episode of retired LAPD homicide detective Greg Kading, and I'll see you next time. Peace out. Welcome to another episode of E4 Explicit Podcast. I'm Corey, and today we have a very special guest, someone who I have I've been doing a lot of research on lately, and um, a lot of a lot of you will know what cases he's worked on that are infamous, really. Um, uh, Greg Kading, the retired LAPD homicide detective, that was the investigator ten years after uh, Tupac and Biggie were murdered. So he's the one that investigated them. And we're going to talk about some some stuff with the Cecil Hotel and Alyssa Lamb and all that that kind of stuff. The the, the latest documentary on on Netflix. So uh, just a little bit more about yourself, Greg. If you can introduce yourself and go a little bit more in depth of your career and stuff like that. Yeah. So thank you. First of all, nice to meet you, Corey. Appreciate you having me on your on your show. Um, I retired in 2010, so I had a 25 year law enforcement oh. career. The majority of it was all kind of um, focused on investigations. Um, primarily gangs and narcotics and then homicides. So I spent the last few years working out of what we called robbery homicide division, which handled all the high profile murders in Los Angeles. Um, so that was it. Then I retired and wrote the book murder rap and that turned into a documentary and the documentary turned into a limited series. And that all kind of took on a life of its own. And that opened up a bunch of doors that led to all these other various projects that uh, I've been fortunate enough to get involved in. Right. Yeah. It's it, listen, I, I, I grew up listening to Tupac and Biggie and as well as some of my mm -hmm. friends did. So some of my younger listeners might have heard of those guys, but don't really understand the impact they had on culture in general. Um, so, you know, the fact that you you got to investigate what blows my mind, though, is why they waited so long to do an actual investigation. I mean, they did a little one, I think, right, with Detective Poole, right? But then he got taken off that case. Well, there was there was always investigators assigned to investigate that homicide. Originally, it was a guy named Kelly Cooper and his partner, Bill Scott, another guy named Edwards, and um, another guy named Felix. So there was all of these different people that slowly and surely were in and out of the picture. Poole eventually got it with his partner, Fred Miller. And then after Poole retired, I'm sorry, after Miller retired and Poole quit, um, a guy named Steve Katz got it. And so there were always people that were 
you know, assigned to manage that homicide investigation. I only got involved in it 10 years after the fact because of a lawsuit that had been waged against the city by Biggie Small's mother and his, and, and his ex-wife, um, Faith. And they were making allegations against the department that caused the department to say, hey, let's reinvestigate this, see if there's anything new in here or if we could substantiate any of the old claims. And so that was our marching orders and why I then got recruited to, um, you know, to look into the cold case. Right. And so based on the TV show that I watched was Josh Dumel, they, 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 I think the, the one, I forget the, the other guys, the other detective that brought you in, why did they bring you in and choose you? Was it because of the Torres case? Well, kind of what happened was robbery homicide still had Biggie Smalls case. Um, you know, kind of a couple of years had really gone by since anybody was actively investigating it. And the lawsuit came up and they're like, the best thing to do is put fresh eyes on this. Don't have people that have already you know, been through the murder books and have already tried to solve it. Let's get fresh eyes on this, a new perspective, new energy, and see if we can come up with something new. Right. So that's the, you know, and they do that all the time. It's a good thing to do in an investigation, especially when one goes cold. You want to let, you know, a fresh set of eyes look at it and see if some new creative ideas might come out of it. That's a, that, that makes Total sense. Okay, cool. Well, what was when you initially got the case? What was your initial like gut feeling? Either like, were you happy to have it? Or did you even realize like who Christopher Wallace? Because it's like, you know, Christopher Wallace, who's that? Oh, notorious mm -hmm. B.I.G. <laughs> well, I certainly was aware who the victim was, um, you know, and of course, his story had been written about in the newspaper, his homicide case had been right. written about in the LA Times, you know, um, in addition to Tupac's for years. And so I was aware of who they were, um, but I went into it really with just the idea that, hey, this is a, this is a cool challenge, you know, and that's what you want to do as an investigator. You always want to be challenged in what you're doing. Right. You don't want anything to ever just become routine. You want new and exciting, you know, obstacles that you have to try to overcome and, and challenge yourself as an investigator. So I was like, hell yeah, let's do this. But I didn't really know what I was getting into either, because there was a lot of controversy and a lot of, you know, mud that uh, had uh, seethed into that investigation. And we had to do business with that. Right. Yeah. That, the more I dug into it, because growing up, it was always like, OK, Tupac's and Biggie are on an island somewhere. Like it's all, you know, the LAPD <laughs> did it. You know, it's like it, but it's an onion, man. Like when you really start yeah. peeling that thing away and you, the different avenues of who knew who and who's a cousin of who. And, mm -hmm. and it's like, wait, these cops are working for Suge and death row, but these cops are also, uh, this one cop robbed a bank and a, you know, Mac and all this. It's just like the, the, the spider web was insane. Yeah, for sure. Every time, every answer would lead to more questions right? instead of the other way around. And so we constantly had to continue to, um, exhaust all of the leads and figure out what was the plausible explanation behind, behind the murders. You know, right. and of course, I was never assigned initially to look into two Pox, but we always suspected that Pox was somehow related to Biggie's. Wow. You know, so we went into that with that idea that, yeah, these are likely going to be related just because of the nature of everything that was going on between um, the rap labels, right. between Death yeah. Row and Bad Boy. Right, the East and the West. I mean, it was only six months apart, too. Yeah, 
Exactly. So it was very close. Um, so so let's talk about Suge Knight for a second. So, I mean, notorious, just bad guy. You know, he's his own worst enemy. <laughs> like he's always getting himself in you know in his own way. So why didn't he cooperate? Was he scared of the bloods? Was I mean, because he was a pretty scary guy. So why wouldn't he just cooperate? Because I think you quoted or you said like, if Suge Knight cooperates, we. Because he looked at, uh, it was a Keefe D in the face, mm-hmm. apparently, right? So we'll get there. But, like, why didn't you cooperate? Well, you know, if you looked at some of Suge's old interviews, and they ask him that question, you know, if you knew something, would you tell the police? And he pauses and says, absolutely not. Right. I don't get paid to solve murders. And so this is this bravado, arrogant, you know, um, attitude that he has. And he wants to maintain that image of a guy from the streets hardcore doesn't deal with cops isn't going to snitch and that type of thing so you know suge knight evolved into that person and there's a lot about the evolution of suge knight and who he became that is very interesting you know he became the character that the newspapers and and in in the media wanted him to be wow and so, you know, Suge Knight was not a gangster. He was a kid from the street that played football, had a solid family, you know, went off to college. But he grew up, you know, within an environment where that whole gang world was also kind of a secondary element outside of his front door. Right. And then he decided to go back and adopt that lifestyle um, once he got into the music business because he knew that that would sell records and create an image in in order to um establish himself as you know a rap music label right and it absolutely did happen i mean you it worked yeah it totally worked you mean you think of west coast you think of tupac should night california love like just gangster nwa i mean that whole Mm -hmm. gangster look is like it sells records um and so, so you mentioned Want to hear like, something really funny. Hell yeah. This is interesting. So Suge Knight goes to El Camino college before he goes to UNLV and plays football. Right. And uh, guess what the one course that he failed on. Criminal so justice. he had all of his different, you know, <laughs> what would you say? Justice. The criminal justice. <laughs> no <laughs> fundamentals of music. <laughs> are you kidding me no you look at his report card and he's like yeah i got a c here d there he did pretty good in this but fundamentals of music straight f what yeah isn't that weird that's so weird the irony huh oh my god well i guess he didn't need it jesus that's right? crazy man damn <laughs> and 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 it's funny because he, he did he was a, he was college educated he was you're right man like when you when i think about it he, he did he played football like you said and came from a probably a good family like you said and the fact that mm-hmm. he just wanted to live that facade of of the media built for him basically i mean it's a good business decision but bad life decision for sure yeah yeah and it, it it wasn't something that just happened overnight you know he goes and he's you know he has an attempt at getting a, a, a professional football career which was his dream mm-hmm. but he soon to you know came to a realization that that wasn't going to happen and then he starts bodyguarding and the bodyguarding leads to him, you know, meeting artists. And then he realizes artists are being exploited and he wants to do something in order to protect these young African-American artists. And so it, it all evolved kind of slowly and generic and uh, organically. Right. Um, but then, 
Yeah, you're right. Once the money came in, the power and the influence, then he became the Suge Knight that uh, the media and everything perceived him as. Right. Is that his real name? His name's Marion. Oh, shit. Yeah, Marion. They used to call him Sugar Bear. That was his nickname as a kid was Sugar Bear. His mom used to call him Sugar Bear. So from that came Suge. Wow. That's crazy. And he got, I think, what, he took the 38-year deal, right, or something like that? I think it's 28 yeah. 28 okay yeah so yeah yeah that case was crazy the hit one yeah. wasn't that on like the set of nwa right it was it was not far from the set right um there was a conflict at the set he left other guys went to meet him they were going to try to you know squash this beef um but it led to a confrontation and then of course Shug ends up uh unintentionally running over a friend of his named terry carter and then gets convicted of manslaughter. My gosh, that's crazy! Yeah, it's horrible. It's oh, terrible, terrible to watch. That's a that's a tough video to watch, actually. Oh, there's um, a video of it. Oh yeah, yeah. If you mm-hmm. Google um, "Should Night Running Over Terry Carter," it's it's quite wa- it's 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 hard to watch because you see you see Terry get killed. Wow! And didn't he have like a? He thought he had a gun, but he really had like a radio or something. So he was fighting with another guy named Seabone Clone. Uh, I'm sorry, um, Claybone um, Sloan. Am I pronounced that right? Yeah, I think so. Anyways, he was working as an advisor on the set of NWA. And Bone does this for a lot of production companies. Anything having to do with gangs, Claybone right. kind of helps to facilitate some of the shooting locations. So he was actually on the set and him and Suge got into it. Um, at the parking lot of a Tam's Burger in Compton. And you see um, Bone, you know, firing away at Suge and through the window and uh, something comes flying out of his waistband. And I'm told it's a radio. Some people thought it was a gun, but I think it was actually a radio. And um, next thing you know, Teddy, Terry Carter steps in front of Suge as he's beginning to drive out of the, um, drive out of the area and he runs him over. Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's that's wild, man. That's kind of ironic, too. Like, like affiliated with the NWA movie and, like, I don't know. It's just, a like, weird, weird situation. Suge was, was pissed off because he knew there was going to be a character, a Suge Knight character yep. that was going to be portrayed in that film and felt like that his, you know, he had the right to compensation. So he's down there pressing up against the director and asking for you know compensation and wow. like basically fuck off yeah that's how this works right <laughs> yeah you know that's crazy man well let's okay so i always thought um since we're on the topic of suge uh tupac's murder there I, i've seen the video i mean growing up i've seen the video of of them beating down was orlando um uh anderson right mm-hmm. yeah so like i always assumed that it was Orlando who actually killed Tupac but I mean I, technically no one really knows because no one's literally come out and said it right well no his cousin I'm sorry his uh uncle Keefe D who was Keefe also D. in the car with Orlando and actually is the one that handed Orlando the gun um to shoot Tupac you know has come forward on multiple occasions confessed to his role in the murder and identifies his nephew as the shooter um, so you have an eyewitness, actually a co-conspirator, um, confessing 
to who the shooter was. And I think the evidence is all pretty solid that it was Orlando Anderson as opposed to anybody else. Orlando Anderson was running around bragging about it the next day in Compton, taking credit for it. And so, you know, it's, I think it's pretty cut and dry about how Tupac was killed and who did it. So then if he's running around and even though you didn't back then have the, the, you know, Keefe D telling you it was his cousin, if he's running Mm -hmm. around Compton telling people he did it, why didn't the LAPD, I mean, was it because the Compton police department would, you know, they were going through some stuff, I think, right. With the Rampart and Mac and, that was later actually yeah yeah. that came years later with tupac that was actually a las vegas police department investigation not an lapd investigation so that happened out in las vegas so lbm metro police department um you know they they always suspected that orlando anderson was their shooter they always kind of knew that he had the motive and the means you know whereabout you know the um ability to do it but they just at that time didn't have eyewitnesses. Mm-hmm. That, they didn't have the key D. They didn't have the key D. And so everything was kind of like, yeah, hearsay. Yeah, the neighborhood's saying he did it. They're claiming he's bragging about it. So that's really not enough to build your case on in order to prosecute him. You needed something more than that. And they just didn't have it back then. Right. So circumstantial. Yeah, it was all kind of circumstantial. Right. Um, and back at the time. Do you like as a homicide detective? Um, just so you know, I was gonna go. I was gonna be a homicide detective. Um, oh. I, criminal justice went to school, and I was just like, I can't. I'm not good with authority, and I just, I don't know. I just couldn't do it. But um, one thing I've noticed, and I've always heard of all the detectives I've talked to, and and stuff like that. And you already mentioned kind of, you know, when something like happens, like in the streets and stuff like that, everyone is so worried and sad. But then the second you go and ask, hey, well, what did you see? I didn't see nothing like that has to be like the worst part of the, not the worst part of the job, but the hardest part of the job when you're trying to solve someone's murder and people who know things that are crucial to your investigation are not telling you. It's even worse. It's not only just people. How about family and friends? What? You know, how about when, you know, should night and sit there in a car and watch Tupac be basically executed and and himself be shot and know exactly who did it and not you know care enough about justice for tupac to do anything about it right at least not in a legal way you know of course they went and had their war in compton and there was a retaliation obviously this is why biggie's killed um but you know just their um way of doing business is very contrary to how you and I perceive how things should be done. Right. Right. Which is a shame, man, because like, like you said, like Suge looked him in the eye, knew it was him. It would have been over in 48 hours. Like we would have got, like you would have got him or, you know, they would have got him and it would have been solved. I mean, one of the biggest murders and of, of anyone. <laughs> and Biggie would still be alive. And Biggie. Hey, why, now, why would you, why do you say that? Because if if Suge Knight and others had stepped forward and said, listen, it was Orlando Anderson, we'll positively identify him. We know him. We saw him. He shot. Orlando Anderson then gets um, arrested and prosecuted and convicted, right? So there's the justice in Tupac's case. There's no reason to go now and kill Biggie. Right. But of course, on the streets, it's a tit for tat. Our gang versus your gang. 
our guy versus your guy. And so, you know, they're making these decisions to um, do their own eye for an eye type of thing. Right. So had, had the system right. been, been utilized the way it's supposed to be, then Orlando Anderson would have just been rotting away in jail for the rest of his life. Yeah. And then that way, because basically what happened, what you're saying is, so, since no one found out it was Orlando Anderson and officially confirmed it was him, they thought they just, okay, it was Biggie's team or whoever affiliated with Biggie. Let's just go get him. Yeah. Well, so what happened, Corey, was right after Tupac was shot in Las Vegas, a rumor started around um, Compton and around Los Angeles that Biggie had a been in Las Vegas the night that Tupac was shot, that Biggie had hired the Crips, wow. that Biggie had provided the gun, and that Biggie had made the payment. So there was all of this bad information pointing the finger at Biggie as the person who set up Tupac. And that is why he was misidentified or he was, you know, mistakenly targeted right. because of street rumors. Wow. And so that's why, you know, Biggie's dead is a result of just bad information. Wow. That's and And as far as, <clears throat> as far as Biggie's murder, I mean, that does happen in your backyard in LA. Um, I forget what kind of party he was at. Um, shit. It was for like a magazine, right? Wasn't it? I don't know. The, the Peterson auto museum where Biggie was killed. Yeah. It was a Vibe magazine Vibe, party. That's right. Yeah, it was an after party for a Soul Train Music Award um, event the night before. Wow. And then, so okay, so let's let's pivot a little bit. All right. So we basically, everyone listening, Orlando Anderson is the trigger man for Tupac. Hundred percent. If you didn't know, now you know. <laughs> so so Biggie. So so Biggie unfortunately dies because of misinformation from the Tupac uh, murder, and. He's leaving the museum and his car gets cut off by a white, I don't know, rain, uh, Land Rover or something like that. Um, an SUV, a white SUV. And go ahead, I'll let you tell the story. <laughs> that white SUV was actually part of their, their caravan, their entourage. Really? It wasn't anybody that was intentionally trying to cut anybody off. Ah. It was a car that pulled in in order to try to get its place in the line because it was part of their crew that were all going to another party. They That Land Rover, uh, I'm sorry, Land Cruiser, had also arrived at the Peterson along with Biggie and his crew. So they're uh -huh. all together. Okay. But because at the time of the shooting, it makes this really abrupt U-turn to get out of it, to get the hell out of there. Witnesses were like, oh man, that must've been part of the shooter's crew. It wasn't, it was part of Biggie's crew. Wow. Wow, that's great. Yeah, because in the show, it's like, that every like you got well, not you guys with the show they're investigating it as like this person cut them off and stuff like that so later on you find out that it's really not right wow that's incredible mm -hmm. um okay so so he his he's he's in front of his and i think we didn't uh somebody catch the light too and get ahead of get of get ahead of him as well yes yeah, so puffy and his driver and his suburban full of people they went through the red light they're just get through here and as um, Biggie and his driver kind of lagging behind, they're pulling right up to the intersection. And that's when this SS Impala pulls alongside and starts blasting into the right front passenger door where Biggie's sitting. 
it very it's the the drive by itself is very very similar to what happened with Tupac. Right, car pulls up alongside, guy leans out, starts blasting. In Biggie's case, it was actually a lone person. It was a lone individual in the car, the driver himself, and was doing the shooting. With Tupac's case, there was four people in the car, wow. and Orlando Anderson, who was in the back seat, was the one who actually leaned out and shot Tupac. So, but very similar in the sense that they just rolled up up to the car where the victims were at, started blasting. You know, rounds are going all over the place, and uh, both of them. Each get one, you know, with all the rounds that are shot, only each, each both Tupac and Biggie each only get one fatal blow, one really? fatal shot. Mm -hmm. Wow. The other ones are survivable, not life threatening. But one bullet found its way through both of them. That, oh my God. That ended them. I didn't know that. That's interesting. That's, and it, it was a lot of rounds too. Yeah. So like seven rounds in Tupac's case. Uh, I think something like seven or nine rounds in Biggie's wow. case. Yeah, that's insane. And okay, so so as far as Biggie goes, the the first initial, well, not the first, but one of the initial investigations was Detective Pool, right? Who's really highlighted in the the TV series. Um, mm -hmm. did, did, was he on to something? Is that why? Because it, I know it's dramatized probably a little bit maybe for TV, but they made it seem like, hey, listen, you're on to something. We got to take you off of this. You're going to go work this robbery. No, so yeah, he most certainly thought he was on to something. Um, originally, Russell Poole thought wholeheartedly that it was most likely the Southside Crips. He thought that Biggie was killed by Keefe D. Keefe D happened to have a black Impala. It was behind a, you know, a house. It seemed to be covered as if they were trying to conceal it. So there was good reason. And a lot of people were calling in saying, hey, man, we think the Southside Crips had something to do with this. So it was all good information to follow up on. Mm -hmm. So he originally thought it was the Crips. And then he starts to kind of change and modify his theory as time goes on. And then there's this bank robbery involving this guy named David Mack. And then he relies on a single clue that comes in from a jailhouse informant named Mike Robinson. And Mike Robinson is sitting in jail up in Wayside. He's a um, schizophrenic. He had been used as an informant in the past. Well, Michael Robinson is trying to figure out a way to, you know, get in good graces with law enforcement because he's facing a case. So he provides these details and clues to law enforcement about Biggie that he says he knows. Turns out to all be bullshit. He lies his way through this whole thing, but he does mention one name. He says a guy named Amir did it. Well, he actually says five names. He says Ashmere, Abraham, Amir, Kenny, Kiki. And he goes, but Russell Poole, finds out that this dirty cop named David Mack who had robbed a bank gets visited by one of his college roommates and his name happens to be Amir. Huh. And so he makes this circumstantial connection and in his mind, all of a sudden, the wheels start to turn, he formulates this theory and he starts going down this road. Well, his fellow investigators are like, Russ, hold on a minute. Think about the source of this information. It's not all that reliable. Everything that this guy told us about who he says the shooter is doesn't line up with the guy that you're saying is the potential suspect. Right. So they're just, you know, they're like, slow down, Russ. Well, he didn't want to hear it. And the more resistance he got, the more he saw that people were, in his mind, stonewalling him. And this is just classic confirmation bias and, 
in, in cognitive dissonance. This is just not the way that you're supposed to think as an investigator, but he was having all these other problems in his life and it all contributed to this kind of meltdown that he had and he left the job. Wow. So, yeah. Cause he, cause he, uh, he was definitely investigating a lot of, cause Mac was a, um, uh, officer Mac was a Compton police officer, right? No, he was an LAPD. Oh, guy. okay. And he, he was the one that he did rob that bank, right? He did rob a bank. Absolutely. Bank of America for 750, you know, 700 and something thousand Never found the money, right? found the money oh my god what yeah yeah it was an inside job he was banging one of the girls that Uh, worked there and she ordered up a bunch of money she set it up for him he came in and robbed it and uh you know obviously got caught um but he went to prison and the money was never recovered did she did she she went to jail obviously for a short period of time she kind of worked herself you know she cooperated Mm. and identified mac and uh, basically confessed to the whole thing. And so she got basically a slap on the wrist compared to what he got. Whoa. He's out now, right? He's been out. Yeah, he's been out for a while. Man, digging up that. He has. I mean, who knows? Anyway, I'm not going to put my tinfoil hat on. So, okay. So Detective Poole thought because he robbed the bank, he was also, wasn't he a security for death row as well? Or he's a part of the Bloods or something. Excuse me. Um, no, never. So that's always been. So this trick. This all took on this urban legend. Ah. So over the years, people started to just pack things on and people coming out of the woodwork and starting to say, well, look at man, after the bank robbery, there's a photograph of him in an all red suit. Well, he must be a blood. Uh. He dresses like Suge. And so they began to spin this, this uh, um, urban legend together and try to, you know, um, try to sell this idea. Right. And Russell Poole kind of fell into that trap. Wow, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. I literally thought like, okay, because it kind of makes sense. He's, he's a cop, he robbed the bank, and that would, why Russell Poole would think that LAPD might have something to do with Biggie's murder. They're trying to save their own and, and cover it up, right? Well, yeah, but that's actually counterintuitive. If, <laughs> if, if, if we're trying to cover up for him, then why are we sending him to prison for 12 years on a bank robbery? Right, right. Right. Yeah. Because if <laughs> there's any, because tr- if there's any truth to him being involved, he'd just simply sit down with the United States Attorney and go, "Hey, I got a deal for you." Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm out of here. Bank robbery? That's nothing. <laughs> Let me tell you what I'm doing. You know. Yeah, so right. he would have worked that to his advantage if there were any truth to it. That's true. I didn't even think about that. See, that's why you're a homicide detective and I'm not. Um. So okay, we talked about <laughs> Keefe D. So you you we kind of know. Well, we know who did who pulled the trigger with Tupac. Who do you still not know? Because that was really your case, right? Was was Biggie. Biggie's. Yeah. So we ultimately end up getting a confessing co-conspirator. She was one of Suge's baby mamas. She was involved in the conspiracy to kill Biggie. And she confessed to her role in that, uh, that um, Suge Knight had solicited the murder from jail. He met with her, told her, hey, get a, lot, get a hold of my homeboy, Poochie, who we knew was a shooter and had done you know, multiple shootings before. And had done work on behalf of Suge Knight like this before. And he tell, Suge tells her, go get a hold of him. Tell him this is what I want done. And s- set the ball in motion. And that's exactly what happened. What? So Pucci shows up at the Peterson Auto Museum that night. He's driving a uh, SS Impala. It was one of the death row vehicles that uh, Suge had leased 
you know, two years prior or a year and a half prior and uh, pulls up alongside and shoots Biggie. There is probably another person involved, somebody else there that was assisting him. We don't have a positive ID on that person. This female doesn't know who it was. It would have been somebody that Poochie went out and, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, joined forces with. Um, but we do know it was Suge, the female, and Poochie. Um, and, and potentially one other person um, in the murder of, of Biggie. Wow. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. That is so, Okay, so he's a real piece of shit then because he knows exactly who killed Tupac and then still goes after and does something to Biggie. Exactly. Well, Whoa. because remember, he's thinking that Biggie's behind the behind. Oh, Mopac's because murder. of the bad information. Mm-hmm. Really? That's fascinating. That's crazy. I would so so Shook Knight is now okay. So you you have all this evidence. It, is the case is still not closed now? So Neither Orlando one. Anderson, He's Orlando dead. Anderson, he dies in 1998. He gets involved in another gang-related shooting. He gets shot and killed. Um, Poochie dies in 2002. He's riding his motorcycle up Central Boulevard, and he was already he was already suspected in other murders. And I think that all caught up with him. Right. The streets caught up with him. So he's driving his motorcycle up the street, and somebody rolls up behind him and shoots him ten times. So he's dead. So both shooters are dead long before. You know, I even get assigned this case. Wow. But as soon as we get these co-conspirators to confess and tell us what happened, you know, you're like, well, we can't raise a dead man from the grave. Right. In order to send him to jail. So we're just kind of stuck with it. So you can't close the case. It's still it has to stay open. No, they don't have to stay open and they can be cleared, um, officially cleared. Um, Nobody's ever going to go to jail. Right. Obviously on these cases. Um, But most certainly they can be, they can be considered officially closed. Wow. That's crazy. So, so basically it was your guys' efforts that got these co-conspirators to admit to what they were involved in. Right. Right. It was me and we had a whole team is, you know, I get a lot of credit for it, but the reality is it was, I was just one of 16 people. Right. You know, we had a huge task force, you know, FBI, ATF, DEA, Sheriff's department, Compton, you know, everybody that we could think of it pull into our task force we pulled in wow because we wanted to use all the resources we possibly could and and it paid off right definitely um yeah so it was a group effort and uh everybody brought something to the table so so i know shug's in prison but he so he can't face any anything for this not really because what you have is you have this female co-conspirator who confesses points the finger at suge but then now look that what this looks like from a prosecutor standpoint is like, okay, Suge's baby mama is going to take the stand, point the finger at him. She's got this long history of perjury and fraud and other, all this other white collar crimes. She had right. like five fake IDs. She'd been involved in bankruptcy fraud. She'd been involved in a uh, you know, liquor license fraud. And so the minute she gets on the stand, the very first thing is like, don't you lie all the time? <laughs> yeah. Yep. And yeah, case is, oh, you know, yeah. so that's it. Right. Yeah. Hard to prosecute somebody based on the testimony of somebody who's consistently lied for years. Right. Do you think that since there won't be any kind of like actual, you know, legal justice, there's already been some sort of street justice as, you know, some karma really of those shooters being kind of 
killed and stuff like that. Pretty much everybody involved in this case on the bad end is dead. Um, you know, including the victims. Do you think that like the, the, you know, the families are like, okay, we know who did it. We believe it. Or do they still think does faith Evans still think that the LAPD had something to do with this? Um, you know, I, I don't know what faith believes and what, what she thinks. Um, Valletta, I think has been given so much conflicting information that she probably just doesn't know what is true. Right. Um, you know, so I don't think that they're ever going to be settled in an absolute definitive answer. Um, but the streets know, the people from Southside know that Orlando killed Tupac. People from Compton know that Pucci killed Biggie and that Suge Knight was behind it. So, you know, now all we can do is let this thing kind of get judged in the court of public opinion. Right. Let people listen to the evidence, listen to the stories, listen to um, what people have to say and then draw their own conclusions. Um, I think it's all relatively simple um right you know this is just this is just gangsters doing gangster shit right no literally that's what it basically comes down to it actually reminds me i mean i haven't seen anything like that until recently when um when nipsey got murdered um in la and that was like just straight up like someone who's trying to do some good in his own community and then someone else that he just had a run in quickly ended his life and then you know he, that guy got caught but like the streets man like went after like this guy's family and just because of who nipsey was so did you guys see a lot of that i know it was 10 years later but did they see a lot of that right after the two murders were they just like going at it well there's a huge gang war started in compton right after Park was shot so the gang started that the crips were lying you know um you know uh, obviously the Crips, the Bloods knew that the Crips had uh, shot Tupac. Right. So, you know, obviously he was killed on their watch. They've got to retaliate. They've got to answer for that. And so blood started to get spilt down in Compton right away. Um, but as far as going after directly family members, not really. Yeah. Um, we just didn't see that. Right. And, and do you think that like, um, it seems like the whole because i remember growing up listen like east you were either you were either team biggie or you were team Pac, right and i mean tupac he's from baltimore he's he's from the east coast like it was so like if you didn't know those kind of things you would think he's a straight up california guy right and he's not mm-hmm. so it's like growing up it was like you were either biggie i, I was team biggie because i lived in D- maryland in the dc area so i was like oh i'm on the east coast like fuck you california <laughs> so like you know did did that play a huge part um of all of this kind of huge, you know, feud between either the Bloods and Crips are always going to do their thing. But, you know, that thing, it seemed like it was, it was like all in the newspapers. It was like East versus West. And it was just like, did that, do you think that contributed to a lot of this? Oh, absolutely. It fueled a lot of the conflict. You know, first of all, you've got Pac, like you said, from the East Coast, but now he's claiming West Side. He's out here. He's talking all kinds of trash on people at Bad Boy. He feels that, you know, they did him wrong back there. So he's got a vendetta. You, know, you got Suge Knight, who's, you know, going to, you know, um, <clears throat> essentially be like Pac's big brother and, uh, you know, get him integrated into his crew out here. And, 
then you've got these labels wanting to encroach upon each other. You've got Pac sitting there like death row East, man, we're going to come to the East coast. Well, how do you think that's going to sit with bad boy? But of course, bad boy wants to expand and have bad boy West. They want to do an LA thing. So now you're talking about these competing record labels wanting to establish themselves in enemy territory. Right. And, and then there's all these actual confrontations that take place. You've got Suge Knight's bodyguard getting killed by one of Puffy's bodyguards in Atlanta in 95 wow. uh, you have these backstage confrontations where they're squabbling and pulling guns on each other you know so this whole thing just kept kept escalating until it came to a head in in las vegas and uh and tupac put himself in in harm's way right well um how long at, when how long was it when tupac got murdered <laughs> that he got shot at the um studio in new york because that kind of like, yeah, it so the year before. Yeah, and I think that was 94, right? Yeah. Okay, so that kind of, that seemed oh, like it kind of, right? 94, 95. Yeah, I thought he got killed 95. Yeah, I think, it, yeah, no, he got killed 96 in September of 96. <clears throat> he went to prison, obviously, after the rape allegations. And, uh, and that's where Shug went and kind of, you know, rescued him out of prison. Yeah, shot and a couple his, times. Yeah, well, he had gotten he had gotten shot at the quad, right? And he was going over there to do some background vocals um, at the request of of Bad Boy. He was right. going to do some background vocals on a guy named Little Sean's album, I think it was, who I think was a Bad Boy artist. And uh, he thought that he got set up for that. Right. He walks right. into the lobby and he gets pistol whipped and he shoots himself on accident and. Next thing you know, he's holding Biggie and Pac. I'm sorry, he's holding Biggie and uh, Puffy responsible for that. He shot himself. Um, yeah, he had a gun in his waistband when he went to grab it. You know, in the in the uh, oh um, midst of getting robbed and pistol whipped, he tried to get his own gun and accidentally discharged it and it shot himself shot himself in the nuts and in the leg. Oh my god! And that was '95. Yeah, I guess that was was. It could have been 94. You'd have to look it up. 94, 95 right. for the quad shooting. Wow. I think it was 94. And then I think Jake Robles got killed in Atlanta in 95. So I think it was 94 was the quad. Jake Robles in 95. And then Tupac murdered in 96. And so you could see like a escalation <clears throat> of, of, of issues and problems that. Oh, absolutely. You know, right. That are just kind of, you can go back and kind of, kind of like, and it's almost inevitable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's you just watch the whole thing fuel itself into right. uh, into what ultimately resulted in the murder of both of them. <sighs> crazy man, so crazy. Yeah. All yeah. right, so that's that's all right. So we solved the murders, kind of. <laughs> uh, let's uh, let's talk about something that I I personally if, am like was obsessed with when it when it happened, and then when the Netflix documentary came out, the the Elisa Lamb story. Mm-hmm. Now I saw you in that. Um, you were not the lead investigator in that, but you played a part in that. Yeah. So <clears throat> I was the other investigator that um, appears on that show. His name's Tim Marsha. Mm-hmm. Him and I were, <clears throat> excuse me. Him and I were homicide partners in uh, Cold Case, and then he did work. Kind of, he worked on the Elisa Lamb. He wasn't the primary investigator, but you've got to understand. At robbery homicide division, we everything we do everything as a team concept. Hmm. So you might have a lead investigator, but you have a 
half a dozen other guys that are all helping you to go out and interview people and chase down leads. Tim was one of those guys that worked on her case. And then um, when this show, when the producers came and wanted to do the show, um, they just wanted me to explain how protocols work with the LAPD because I was retired and I can go out and have these conversations right. with, and if you're on the job, that's going to be a problem for you to go out and talk about these cases with the media. Right. So LAPD doesn't necessarily like its investigators doing that. So that's why I did it. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And he was retired too then, right? Not at that point. Tim wasn't. Oh. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Elisa Lamb, her body was found on the top in the, in the water tank on top of the Cecil hotel. Right. What the hell? Like the, I mean, the documentary, if you haven't seen it, watch it. Cause it's amazing. Um, but talk about a mind fuck, honestly, like, I mean, the camera and her in the elevator and then, you know, them saying it's, it was like, it looks like it was like edited or something like that. And she's making these crazy gestures and like, and then she's found naked right in, in the water tank. Right. How, like, how does it, what happened? It's still not solved. Right. Yeah. It's absolutely solved. It was it, an accidental drowning. Really? Yeah. What? Yeah. She climbed up there. She was having a delusional episode. She wasn't taking her medications. She was severe bipolar. And that's why she's acting like that in the elevators because she's having delusion. She's thinking that people are chasing her. She's paranoid and she goes and tries to hide. And, um, you know, once she's in the water, when she climbs up there and, um, and drops down into the water, well, that water level slowly and surely starts to subside as water usage is, and she's no longer able to reach up and grab uh -huh. the, uh, the opening. And then, of course, when you're drowning, one of the most common things that a drowning victim will do is shed their clothes because it inhibits, it inhibits your movement huh. and you start to panic. And the first thing that you start to do, this is common, is to start to shed your clothes because it is weighing you down and it is keeping you from moving freely and you won't float as well. So um, it's not unusual at all Wow. Um, once you understand all of that. But she was just having a a really severe delusional episode because she wasn't taking her medications. Damn. And, uh, you know, it, one thing led to another. And unfortunately, she got herself into a situation she couldn't get out of. Her sister, when you guys, somebody interviewed her sister, did her sister tell you in this information, right? The family did, yeah. Members of the family are talking about her history when she would go hide, when she wasn't taking her meds. And, you know, she had this very unfortunate condition which is one of the things that she was actually out doing. She was trying to prove to herself that she didn't need to be um, coddled by her parents, that she could go and have a independent life. Right. And so she sets out and things are going well and she's able to go out and travel and do things, but she stops taking her medication because then she figures, well, if I can do this on my own, then I can probably shed the meds too. But when you have, so, you know, when you have these mental disorders, um, you can fall apart pretty quick when you're not taking right. the meds. Right. And that's Damn. what happened. It's I guess it's, it's, it's super sad. And I think it's like they definitely, the, the documentary, but just people in general on the internet like to play up the whole, with the whole Cecil Hotel and everything oh, yeah. and make it like a demonic thing. And then, you know, yeah. Richard Ramirez's spirit did it to her, some crazy mm -hmm. shit. Um, Damn, I, I don't remember them saying all of this in the doc, though. Did they? Yeah, 
Yeah, it was part of the autopsy report because the autopsy report is where, you know, you've got a coroner who does the examination and they see that, you know, there's no ligature wounds, there's no sign of struggle, there's no sign of rape, there's no sign of any kind of indicators that would indicate that there was foul play. Mm. Uh, There's, you know, her lungs are full of water and um, and, uh, it's, it's just clearly a drowning situation. And, you know, in order for somebody to like pick her up and carry her up those ladders, put her in there and her not hit her head or not, not hit her elbow and scratch, you know, right. so there's all of these things to kind of support the idea that it's nothing than nothing more than just her, her being her own victim. Right. That's and honestly, the, the, the close things like a light bulb, what if that makes total sense? Cause the whole, a lot of people are like, oh, well, how does she? How is she naked? How is it's like? Well, if that's a common thing when you're drowning, then shed your clothes. That makes total sense. Mm-hmm. What the hell, man? I don't remember. It's so crazy. I don't remember that part of the documentary. I guess my mind was like, "Yeah, this is this is this is not close." You that's were too insane. focused on that, that death metal guy in Mexico. Yeah, <laughs> dude, there were some wild ass people in that in that show, man. That was. There was some wild coincidence in that show. There was. I mean, she went to a university where they're studying tuberculosis, and the the, uh, the 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 test that there is, the Elisa Lam test, is like, where is this coming from? It was yeah. just perfect for a for a uh, conspiracy theory. That's uh, do, do you guys did you guys have a, a hard time, you know, with the Biggie and Tupac, but also with that Lisa Lam, like having to sift through all that shit, or is it just like when you get a call like that? I know you got to follow up on every lead, but. Are you really going to be like, all right, we're not going to go look this up because this sounds, this is crazy. Well, it, you know, of course you take it all seriously. She's missing. She's a, she's a, you know, foreign student. She's down here and she's gone. We don't know. I mean, she's in the worst part of town. Like she's right. literally in Skid Row. Skid Row. Yeah. So you're serious. Like, oh shoot, she's probably been abducted, you know, or she's either been abducted or, you know, whatever. And so, and then of course there's a lot of shady people that are, staying at that hotel right and so is she being you know kept you know hostage in somebody's room right so they take it all seriously and but once they actually found her then it it didn't look great you know because like how do we miss her she's been up there for a couple weeks right and you know so it didn't look great because obviously it could have been more thorough of a search um but again the idea i think for the original investigators was like okay She's either disappeared on her own or somebody's grabbed her and kidnapped her. They right. aren't thinking really. They did go door, door and room to room. But the idea of her being in a water tank up on the roof probably never entered their mind. Right. I mean, why would it? Because it's like just the, the situation she would be in. Like you said, I mean, I think half the hotel was like for like homeless people or people on some sort of plan with it. And then, I mean, like Rollies, you said, drug yeah, rehab, man. it was all. So yeah. that's where your focus is going to go. Obviously, naturally as an investigator, because right. that's where bad things typically happen. Right. Wow. That's fucking crazy, man. So do you, uh, let me ask you, do you, uh, you, okay. Were you, when was, uh, did you have anything to do with Richard Ramirez at all? Only that, you know, I grew up, you know, in Orange County when this, when he was on his crime spree. So, you know, I was out there hitchhiking the streets and all of those things during that period of time. And then when I was um, first got on the job, I started out with the Orange County Sheriff's Department. 
And after I went through the academy, I ended up working in the jail. And Ramirez was one of the um, inmates in the wow. jail where I worked. So you would see him as he's, you know, going to court, going back and forth to his, uh, his attorney visits and that type of thing. So, you know, I was just aware of him and like, oh, there's that crazy, psychotic, killing motherfucker that did all of these things. <laughs> so I didn't have anything to do with his cases. Um, I just happened to work in a place that he was being housed temporarily. Wow. Let me tell you something funny. Yesterday or two days ago, I was driving to the grocery store and I get this phone call and it's an LA number. And I'm like, that's not my sister. It's not my dad. It's not, who the fuck is this? So I pick it up. It's like, it's a, can I speak to Corey Packer? And I was like, I was like, yeah, this is him. It's like, this is Frank Salerno. Um, and I was like, get the fuck out of here. They obviously the investigator Hillside right. and Ramirez. Yeah. And I was like, I literally, I'm like driving. I almost crashed. Cause I'm like obsessed with that, that murder. And that is just so right. huge. And I'm like, Hey, how did you get my phone number? And B, this is fucking awesome. So anyway, so I'm, I was, I'm interviewing him uh, in probably like a week, week or so, but I, I was curious. Cause you know, some of you guys always, you know, by now you probably, I don't know if you've talked to him or know him and stuff mm -hmm. like that, but I mean, you guys have pretty, not pretty, very notable cases that you've worked on. Yeah. Um, I don't know Frank personally. Obviously, I know him by way of his reputation right. and, um, and aware of all the work that he'd done on, on those, um, those really big cases. Uh, that was a massive case. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, my hat's off to him. But, uh, yeah, I don't know him personally. Yeah. But you stumble, you know, all you, 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 it's a, it's a crapshoot in law enforcement, what you get. You know, he's on call. He happens to get... Um, one of these cases that he has no idea is going to turn into really this. yeah well he wouldn't know you're just on a call at home you know eating dinner and you get a call that says hey there's been a murder you need to come out here and investigate it and then as time goes on it takes on a life of its own wow and so it's just it's just the luck of the draw really and so that's just the way this is with these you know homicide units right you just you get you get what you get dealt Right. And if so, let's say you're you're you worked a lot of narcotics and gangs and stuff. So would that be mainly like a lot of gang stuff? Because why would he or is he it was there like just a normal homicide department, you know, or like like what's the difference? So with the sheriff's department, it's a little bit different. They have what's kind of known as a central centralized homicide unit. So all their homicide investigators all kind of work out of a central location mm -hmm. and then they cover the county. Oh, so wow. there could be a murder out at Catalina Island, which is part of L.A. County. And those guys have to get on a boat and go over oh. Catalina and investigate the crime scene. So wow. they, they bounce all over the county. LAPD is a little bit different in that we have divisional homicide units. So our city's broken up into all these precincts. Mm -hmm. Used to be there was 18 of them when I was working there. Now I think there's 22 or 23 because they keep subdividing. And each of those precincts has their own homicide units oh, okay all right and then we have a centralized homicide group which is called robbery homicide division that just does the high profile murders in the city of los angeles that are going to tax the resources and the demands of the smaller units um where you know you they can go out and handle you know your average gang investigation right. gang shooting but once it becomes a celebrity murder and it's going to take a lot of resources and energy and money, then oftentimes 
robbery homicide division will assume investigative responsibility of that case just because those smaller units aren't equipped um, with the resources right that it would take right right that's fascinating i didn't know that's how it worked so wait so salerno he was on the sheriff's department i i I believe frank salerno was with the la county sheriff's i believe right okay Mm -hmm. yeah him him and the other guy i forget his name the uh the spanish dude yeah, those two guys are the ones that pretty much tackled that that investigation. And he and it's funny because right. they like at least in the documentary they made it seem like because Frank's not, he just solved like he's famous for solving the hillside and then he comes in and just is like you know right, let me uh, let me take over here and then but that's fascinating I didn't know that that's how the you know it's luck of the draw you know you, like you said yeah at dinner just eating dinner and next yeah thing you know, he's he's up and then of course it's just it's just a what we call a rotation wow. And so he'll catch a fresh case. And then now he's back on the bottom of the, uh, mm. uh, the call out list. And somebody else now is going to the top and the next murder those guys get. Right. So you, you don't know what you're going to get until you get it. And sometimes they're just your run of the mill. Right. Hey, wife shot husband. Mm-hmm. Or it's some crazy thing like hillside strangler or you know the night stalker right i think it was such a big deal because it's like it's probably rare for someone to get one of those cases in their career let alone multiple right 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 (laughs) right well that's like my partner darren dupree when he retires he's going to be one of the most interesting guys around because a he worked you know the big in tupac case with me um then he ended up with the grim sleeper case Right, which is a huge LA. Wow. Yeah, look that up. Okay. Um, he ended up as one of the investigators on that, and then he's continued to go on and have a bunch of other really interesting high-profile murder cases, and so he's built up this incredible investigative resume um, with some pretty notable cases. And right. Again, it's just you don't, don't know you're getting. <laughs> you don't know what you get until you get. It. That's so cool, man! I did not know that. And so, so. It, and so would you guys would get um do you stay on the case until it's solved or you know until you retire like how does that work so typically yeah once you're assigned the case that's your case oh my gosh Uh, but if you transfer out of the unit or you retire Mm. or somebody else you know or if it goes cold and somebody else just wants to come in and take a look at it you know you um just because you started with it doesn't mean you always end with it interesting that makes sense Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so cool, man. That's awesome. Some then, of these things don't get some of these things don't get solved for right. years and years. And right. so people have to move on. What do you think about that uh, DNA stuff, man? The uh, I mean the uh, uh what's it called? The 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 blonde chick, I forget the one that found this guy in San Francisco. Um oh the Golden State killer? Golden State, yeah. The DNA yeah. that they do. Yeah. So I think that was through what they call familial DNA, yep. family DNA. Yeah. And so they're basically triangulating DNA in order to try to narrow down a suspect. It's fantastic. I mean, DNA has become, you know, an investigator's best friend. And, right, right. And yeah. it is, thank God for it. That, um, it's funny. I was, I did a, um, an interview with a friend of mine, Anthony Davies, who's an economist. Um, he's from Virginia, but he's like super brainiac. He's a professor. Um, and so I was talking to him, I was watching one of my old episodes and he mentioned Parabon, which is the company he he basically started with years ago. That's the company that has, that started that technology. And I'm like, I shoot myself in the foot every time. Cause now I watch these DNA shows and I'm like, God damn it. Like if I would have known that that was Parabon, the company that, 
uh, I forget her name, the girl that like does all the DNA stuff. That's the company that they use is Parabon out in Virginia. And it's oh, like, wow. yeah, it's, I mean, it's small world, but it's yeah. just that technology is fascinating. They can do that f- from a piece of DNA and find someone that did something 40 years ago. It's yeah, so helpful. Exactly. I was thinking about DNA today because I was on, I was on, I think probably Facebook or something. And I saw somebody post a thread about this LAPD officer named Stephanie Lazarus. Stephanie Lazarus was an LAPD detective who had murdered, um, who had murdered her boyfriend's ex-girlfriend years and years and years and years and years ago. And it went unsolved. And she actually at one point in time was investigating a murder that she had committed. It's a wild story. Yes. And so eventually um, the victim, when the victim was killed, there was a bite mark on her. And, you know, it, it, this is all pre DNA. Wow. So years and years and years and years later, when a cold case investigator started to look into this old unsolved murder and they're like, hey, there was a bite mark on that victim. We should see if we can extract some DNA from it. And so they do. And they identify this LAPD detective named Stephanie Lazarus through the DNA. (laughs) It's wild. And they arrest her. Oh, they, she's in prison. Yeah, they arrested her and prosecuted her. And oh my uh, it, god, it's, yeah, it's wild. That's fast. And she at one point investigated her own mm-hmm. doings. Shut the fuck up! What the <laughs> hell, man? How, what, how much that? effort do you? Th- yeah, how much effort do you think she put into? Oh something? yeah, she's like, ah, this was good. Let's just let this go cold. Well, this is exhausted. We've looked yeah. everywhere. Yeah, there's uh, nothing here. Next, see, folks. That's crazy. Wow. <laughs> Stephanie Lazarus. I'm looking that up. That's incredible. Well, hey, man, I won't take up any more of your time. I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show and uh, talking to me um, about Tupac and Biggie and, you know, the the Lisa Lamb and just giving us some insight on on homicide detectives and what you guys do and stuff like that. I, I find it fascinating. So, you know, thank you so much for coming on, man. It's not too late. You can still join, buddy. Ah. The LAPD needs some good investigators uh, now, I'm, more, now more than ever. Uh, oh no, man. It's like, <laughs> I, I, I was obsessed with it. Cause I don't know if I was obsessed with it for all the wrong reasons where I was just like, I like the, you know, but then I was like, damn, I gotta be a beat cop for like a little bit, you know? And, and that's then, the most fun. I know. I know. I know. I have a that's lot of the most fun, man. So, but, but also the area where I was looking to work in back in Maryland had literally like, two homicide detectives and it's like oh you want to be a homicide detective you have to wait for them to retire which is like forever and i was like oh my god do you trust me i looked at san francisco la new york like i looked everywhere because i was just fascinated with that that this what do you guys do man it's like it's crazy it's fucking crazy see you have you're intrigued by it. you would have been a great investigator oh, man just that, because you're passionate and intrigued by it by uh the mysteries of it all right that's what that's what it takes right man you gotta you gotta, yeah. you gotta love that stuff man yeah. that's mm-hmm. that's amazing well like i said man thank you so much for coming on i hope to you know in the future talk to you again but that's been another Absolutely. episode of the e-force was a podcast and we'll see you next time